my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast. Jess Wiener is a cultural thought leader who has worked with thousands of individuals and advised companies like Unilever, Mattel, Warner Brothers, and Nike. She's been behind culture-changing moments from Dove's campaign for real beauty to the evolution of Barbie. What is the part of your career that you're most proud of? That's a hard one because 
all the things that I've gotten to be a part of, Amy, have come at very different parts of my life. So they're connected to certain kinds of memories or moments for me, right? So maybe there's two, I think, that really stand out because I've seen the impact largely in in culture, right? So when I started talking about beauty and stereotypes in the media and the impact of that on the confidence and self-esteem of girls and women, I think one of the programs I'm obviously most proud of is helping to build the Dove Self-Esteem Project and the curriculum work that we've done now to over 82 million girls around the world. Like Dove's become the largest distributor of free self-esteem content in the world. And so that changed me and shaped me because I got to see the the power of the scale of the work, right? And, you know, I was one person as a playwright and as an educator doing this work well before I ever fell into the brand space and then with a partnership with the brand. And it's been on now for 17 years. So it's not was not a one and done relationship. I'm still working with them this many years later, longer than my marriage. And so I think the other thing that I'm most proud of is, you know, changing Barbie's body and working with, you know, companies like Mattel or Disney on changing the way we see princess and the way we see Barbie because they were such lightning rods for conversation and culture. And rightfully so. There was a lot of not great (laughs) representation in those brands for young people. And that was a harder relationship for me to enter into because I was questioning how much impact I could really have. And then I've seen some tremendous growth come from that, you know, in changing the doll and changing the conversation, but most importantly, maybe changing the way kids see themselves in the work, which is always my goal. I work on behalf of the, you know, people consuming the messages. The partners that are brands are just that for me. They're partners. But my real my real client um, are other people. Talk to us about how you saw yourself as a kid. Well, I think that's a big impetus as to why I do this work, Sam, because I loved media as a kid. I grew up in Miami, Florida in the 80s. So everything for me was, you know, just to frame that the moment was Miami Vice and blonde, bouncy beach babes. And, you know, it was the 80s. So waterfall bangs were really in. And I had like this crazy Jufro that didn't do much. And I was like really struggling with my ethnic ambiguity and like how I, you know, how I showed up in culture. So as a little kid, I loved TV. I even loved commercials. I was a obsessed with who got to be on TV and who made those decisions, like who got to tell those stories, because I've always been a storyteller as a kid. But I had a real rough intersection of loving the medium and then also being very well aware that like girls like me didn't show up in that medium, not in the magazines I read, not in the TV that I consumed. You know, and I grew up at home with a mom who also very 80s, was on every diet you know, known to humankind and was had been also indoctrinated with her own you know, body image messaging. So I got that passed down to me as far as like an emphasis on thinness and beauty and assimilating to kind of popular culture views of beauty. And so I struggled quite a bit as a kid with reconciling this insane creativity and curiosity I had and then trying to figure out how I could put it out in the world. And so much of being a girl in the world still is about being validated on your attractiveness and your appearance. And so, you know, then it was just a lot harder because I didn't have any framework to know what was going on. You wrote about this time in your book, A Very Hungry Girl. It was a very dark time for you, a lot of that era. Can you share with us what it was really like? Because I'm sure also a lot of our listeners have children that are going through challenges now. I really had a very 
close relationship with my mom growing up. But I think within that closeness, there was a lot of enmeshment around the things that she had struggled with as a young person and then as an adult and hadn't done a lot of work on herself before, you know, and as she was raising kids, just wasn't that generation that went to therapy that really looked inward. So I absorbed a lot of that messaging. Like I grew up in a family where we did group diets. You know, my dad was on a diet. My mom was on a diet. We had a little chart, you know, in our bathroom where people logged their weight publicly. But it was so normalized for me. It was just what I thought you did. And I thought when you got into puberty, because this was the big message for me, right? I wasn't a kid who grew up with a, a weight problem. That's the irony of this. And that's maybe why I would say, Sam, I wrote that book first was to kind of talk to both parents and kids and say what you may be innocently thinking is good advice for your daughters, if it's not examined on its own merit of health and wellness, like can be very damaging because my mother didn't want me. She was overweight as a kid. I was not. But she didn't want me to go through what she did. So it was this preventative measure, right, from her to say, we're going to start you on a diet when I started to develop hips and breasts and, like, started to put on a little bit of weight. But I look back at those pictures and I think, oh, my God, I was just going through puberty. I wasn't like, you know, and and even if you do have an obese kid or you've got a kid who carries extra weight on their frame, like, the manner of the conversation was never an affirming one about my body image and navigating my hunger and my puberty and my growth. It was all this very intense shame around being heavy, taking up space, wanting to be accepted and approved of on the outside world. So I think for me, um, I started you know, developing an eating disorder, late middle school, high school for sure, that lasted you know, well into my 20s and, um, you know, was a result of a lot of this messaging, both at home and I think obviously out out in the world. Um, and it wasn't until college that I went into like recovery for it or treatment for it that I actually really had a framework of understanding how much I had absorbed from my mother's unmet needs and unmet pain around this issue. And it's really hard because for many years I wanted to just, you know, blame. And I think we all go through this period where you have an awareness and you want to heap it on our parents. And I, you know, I've been in therapy for quite some time. I've done a lot of healing around it, still have a lot more to do. But I get it more now that she was coming from a place that she could only come from. And that was, you know, her own misinformation and pain as a kid in doing that. So I think that fueled for me why I want to work on the systemic change, not just broadly out in culture, but in how we engage in our families, too. What is your relationship to your body today? Oh, we've gone on such a journey together, me and this beautiful body that is now in full-blown perimenopause, y'all. So here's the beautiful part of it is like I'm talking to you all about like my puberty days, which now are like so far in my rearview mirror. And I'm like, holy crap, nobody prepared me for like late 40s perimenopause and all of the shifts that are happening there. But I, I will say that I'm the healthiest I've been both physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually that I've ever experienced in my journey in this earth so far. And that's come from a long fought battle with like both the mental unwellness of an eating disorder and the long lasting effects of diet culture in this country. And also New things that get to pop up when you unpack something like an eating disorder, you know, it's not just about what you're eating or not eating or obsessing about weight. It's a it's a metaphor. It's a euphemism for so much more. And I, it's like women 
it's a, we're not allowed to take up space. That's very still very scary, still very damaging. And even though we've got lots of rah-rah confidence messaging, which I'm highly aware of, at the end of the day, the world doesn't reward confident women. They just don't still. It's still a liability to be a confident woman, even though we tell our girls that's what we want them to be. The world is still not set up, I think, to fully accept and embrace the complexity of a woman who loves herself and who takes up space. And I think those are the things I now grapple with as I have age and wisdom under my belt is, you know, reassigning my values, like learning to heal and let go, but also learning more what's really important to me and taking up space and being seen is really important to me. But I had to do that for me first. When I was a kid, I did that with regard to like a physical facade. Like if you complimented me, then I felt seen on these very surface kind of symptoms. And now I'm I'm interested in a different kind of relational piece. And all of that, I guess, goes back to the question about my body, because this is the suit of which I walk through the world in. And, you know, and now I have a different relationship in caring for me and as such caring for my for my body in different ways and for different reasons. How do you start from a very early age instilling a love of your body at any size? I think that comes from being living your own healing at any stage of which you're at as a parent. It's it. If you haven't started looking at it yet, then let this conversation be the wake-up call for thinking about that. It doesn't mean you have to parent from a place of perfection. We know that that's impossible and and unnecessary even in this conversation. But what I wished I would have had for my mother was transparency in her real journey about where she was at. My mother just wasn't hadn't done any exploration about the diet messaging and the abuse that she had put her body through and was parenting from that place. And so I would say the biggest advice is, you know, get conscious of your body beliefs and your body biases. You know, if you propose to have at home this like body-free talk where, you know, you're not talking about weight with your kids, but you're in the car with them and you're talking about weight on the phone with your friend that they're overhearing or you're commenting on a stranger passing by. Like they pick up on all of it, not just the direct messaging. And so I would say it, it requires a real sense of awareness and grace because I do talk to tons of moms every day who are like, you know, want to be better for their kids. And I'm always like, be better for you. Your kids will pick up on what that means to do that, right? And I think that's most important. So for me, it's about starting conversations, not having the perfect conversation about body image. Is it possible to go from insecure to super confident? Do you think that's something we can do? Yeah, but I I, I do. But I also think those are not like stations for arrival, their manners of traveling. I think everybody has moments of insecurity and moments of confidence. So I would I would encourage us to not think about them as stationary elements of being. Like right now you might be in an insecure phase in your life, whether you're you know, you're 12 or you're 42, like insecurity is a natural human experience and doesn't have to stay. And I think, and confidence can also be a natural human experience, but doesn't always stay. So I love to talk about emotions as energy in motion. They move through your body. They move through your life. It's like they're not stationary. They're fluid and flexible. And I think if we could develop a 
emotional literacy around that, Amy, it would be helpful for us to recognize that these moments, they happen, they're real, we can feel them, we can experience them, and then we can move on from them. So we don't stay stuck in that label. So when you ask, can you move from insecure to confident? I mean, I could do that in one day. I could do that in one morning, like depending on the circumstance, you know? So I think it's important to know it's all within us. All of it is within us and none of it is based on external things. We might think it is, right? We might think, well, I'll be confident when I have this or reach that or have this goal met. But you, we all know this. We know incredibly successful people that does not guarantee their happiness or confidence. So it's really an inside job. And now a quick break. Are you a woman-owned business looking for a new sales channel? I'm so excited to tell you about our newest partner, the W Marketplace. Founded by two women, it's a nationwide e-commerce site for women entrepreneurs and the shoppers who support them. It offers favorable terms and is a supportive community for female-founded companies. With over 500 women-owned businesses selling thousands of products and services, the W Marketplace might be your favorite new sales channel. Intrigued? Learn more at jointhewmarketplace.com. Jess, you have... My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile... The ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. 
Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've basically been an entrepreneur throughout your entire career, starting in your 20s, and you've reinvented yourself and your direction many times. What have you learned about entrepreneurship and and what are your sort of thoughts on entrepreneurship today? You know, I wish I had a community like the both of you when I was 21 and deciding to start a business without even knowing the term entrepreneur. I just knew I was a highly I was a highly educated person who didn't like any of her job prospects. Like I was a creator who had three degrees from university that guaranteed me literally to make no money because they were all liberal arts degrees that I loved. And there wasn't a career path forged that was like combining theater and women's studies and social issues. So I was like, how does one make this? And what I will say is the solo entrepreneur journey for me, which started at 21, and I'm now 48. So I've been doing this my entire career. I've never worked for anybody else um, except for a retail company I worked with for four days selling clothes, and then I had to I had to leave that job. But um, that was my only experience, like four days. And here's the story I don't often tell. That was at a company called Learner, and you know, which was then owned by the Limited. And I was selling clothes, but I was a terrible like floor person because I was in the dressing rooms talking to women who were having breakdowns about their bodies more than I was out on the floor. And while I was in a dressing room with a young girl and her mom during back to school shopping, somebody stole four leather coats off the floor when I wasn't looking. And so I think my career in retail was going to be limited no matter what, because my heart was in helping in a different way than selling. I mean, turns out they actually bought a lot of clothes after our confidence talk in the dressing room, but I was not destined to be a store manager in that way. But I, you know, what I learned about entrepreneurship is that it's really lonely if you don't tap into community. And I know for me, obviously, because I was doing this in the, you know, early 90s and to, you know, and and didn't have, like, we didn't have the internet. I didn't have the connection to community. I didn't have a framework of 
entrepreneurship and what I was actually doing was quite brave and awesome. I did it as a survival technique. I mean, I, I've always figured out how to make money doing what I love. I will find, I understood the relationship as like finding my audience, figuring out how to, you know, that transactional experience of like, what's the need? And so when I started, I started as a nonprofit theater director and I made up that company by getting a grant for $5,000 from a pharmaceutical company who had like issued an arts grants program. And I I applied, I got it. And then I started a company on $5,000 and had no idea like how do I, that you should match it, that I needed to raise more money. I just started doing it and figuring it out as I went. So I think three big things would be it can be really lonely. And sometimes it still is really lonely. I think, you know, I'm captain of my own ship here. I have a really wonderful team. But as you said, Sam, I reinvent all the time. And, and that can feel so scary and inconsistent. And, and I'm always questioning, am I, you know, a good leader? Am I supposed to be this way or that way? So there's a lot of loneliness there. But the other two things I'll say is there's incredible... I love the excitement of the hunt of being an entrepreneur and on to innovating and creating and and the freedom and flexibility to do that. And then the third piece I'll say is I'm a problem solver and entrepreneurship lets me experience that. Like I like to continue to explore ways to be part of the solution when I see something that's there. So it's a it's a mixed bag, you know, for me, unfortunately, like I don't think there's anything else I'm really designed to do. But, um, you know, even knowing that it's it's still, you know, it's an up and down journey, as you both well know. How do you build your life independent of expectations or the way other people do it? Or, you know, how do you avoid falling into that trap over and over again? Whether or not it's it's about falling into thinking I need to do it in a certain way that people do it, for me, it's more about what level of success and what kind of success am I really like looking to create? What does success look like for me? Um, because I can tell you at a time in which my company was the most profitable, I was the most miserable personally and having the deepest health crisis mentally because I was building a business that looked great on the outside to other people and was shiny and had all the attributes that got the accolades, but it was not born from where this work is born from for me, which is relationships and problem solving and being creative. I had lost that. And so no amount of money I've now discovered is worth that kind of feeling. And now I've redesigned the company and I'm out of space again where I am incredibly aligned and profitable and growing. And it's different because I grounded it in values that were important to me. And I did things that the old entrepreneur and boss in me would have never done, like permanent half-day Fridays for us is just one example that happened, especially during the pandemic, where we were just like, we all needed two and a half-day weekends. It's minor, but it's major when you're a small team and you're at the beck and call of big clients. Like, Choosing that was important or putting mental health and wellness first and designing my business around what that meant for me and then therefore my employees. So those things now are my guideposts. And I think that's what helps me, Amy, stay more centered on my definition of success versus blindly sort of going out there and trying to emulate a model that's not mine. I have an IP business. I'm not selling gadgets and gadgets. Like that's not my my main um, connective point. And so in order to protect that IP, I had to protect the body, the life, and the world that that IP lives in. Talk to us about your journey to romantic success. Well, Sam knows my amazing partner in life that I didn't marry until I was 40 years old. My husband's name is Felipe. And um, I met him in my late 30s. And so my journey to um, 
to the romantic partnership of my life is um, it's such a great journey because ultimately I would say to anybody listening, um, partner did not come in the package that I had thought, you know, my partnership would come in as we hear all the time. And in some ways I feel quite like a cliche. I had been in love with other people. I'd been in long-term relationships and I would always hear people tell stories about the moment they knew they were in love and like, Like, you know, and I was like, well, I've loved people and I've been in love. And then I had that moment with my husband. We we knew each other casually. I was actually engaged to somebody else for a very short period of time on the path to becoming a stepmom and really discovered that I loved the kid more than I loved the guy. And so had to extricate myself from that because that's not a fair scenario for anybody. And was, of course, heartbroken more for the girl than the person and was in this space of real um, reclamation of myself. So I took a year off from dating and took a year to do all kinds of things. I took pole dancing classes and writing classes, and I was in a ladies' rock band for a minute. Like, I did all the things that were like, you know, my new renaissance of being. And I had known Felipe casually for a couple of years, and um, and then we came back into contact together. And Never thought about him in that capacity. My husband is um, a beautiful woodworker and artist. And we went, he came over and made dinner. And I remember sitting at the table with him and I had that love moment. I had that moment where he was talking and I had all these feelings that were very unfamiliar to me, even as a 37-year-old woman who'd been in relationships before. I was like, oh my God, is this it? Is this what people are saying? And then fast forward, we eloped six months later. And uh, and it indeed was, and now we're we're going on nine years of marriage, and um, and it's incredible. And my, you know, the thing I'll say too, my husband's from Mexico, English is his second language, and he married a professional communicator in this language. And there is nobody better who can speak to me, with me, uh, and connect uh, than my husband, even with the the language differences that we have. He is so supportive and. Your relationship is so strong, and I've seen you two in action. I think one of the things that when you just said he didn't come in the package I expected or he wasn't the package I was – can you elaborate on that? Because I think that so many of us get caught up in the package. Well, I mean, he, first of all, you know, we have wildly different, you know, backgrounds. So he, you know, grew up in Mexico, had been in this country for about almost 18, 19 years by the time we met, you know, worked in a completely different industry, had just had different life experiences. Like he, I think, you know, if, if my, if my socialized way of thinking about relationships would have had it, I wouldn't have been looking for somebody who we weren't in the same industry together. Like, I would have imagined that we would have had nothing in common, Sam. Like, what would we possibly get to connect on? And then what's interesting is because I I love people and I love talking to people, we've always maintained this. The first time I ever met him, we had this beautiful spiritual conversation um, about sage and energy and saging a room, you know, and I'm definitely into all that, you know, great woo-woo stuff. And and he asked me questions about it. We had this beautiful conversation. And I remembered that when we got reconnected again, that there was something that was just delightful to be curious about with him. Like, he just kept surprising me. And I remember, like, you know, I will say one thing about my husband, although now the situation is different. I was, you know, I was already pretty successful in my business, and he was starting a new one, and we were financially not on the same level. And I remember calling, you know, and talking to my dad about how I wanted to marry, and, like, you know, I was just so crazy about him. But, you know, I think I was feeling like, oh, my God, should, like, 
he have more money? Should I be like, you know, is that a concern for me? And I remember my dad saying, you know, this is like life changing. So shout out to Michael Weiner. But what he said was a man's bank account is mutable and changeable, but his character is not. And he said, you know, if he's a good person and a kind person and you love him and he's your partner, his bank account can change over time. But those other qualities are much harder to change or shift in a person. And what it did was give me perspective and I think in some ways permission. And I don't mean that in like super patriarchal sense, but I do mean it in a sense of like social expectations to kind of say, yeah, we're going to we're going to enter this life together. And we're we're on so many levels compatible, but we're not compatible financially. And now we're much closer to that piece together. And his business has grown wildly. But it was, you know, I felt like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's always been so force down our throats that we need men to save us, save us financially, provide for us in all of these ways. And my husband and I have very flipped gender roles at home. Like he is the maker, the baker, the cook, the cleaner, the, you know, I am the finances and the negotiating of home stuff and like other things. And we work incredibly well like that. Nobody wants to see me cook. And I don't want to see him do our bills like that is like, you know, and but like and that is also why I knew he was my partner, because we could design a life based on our strengths as people and not fall into those gender roles. And now a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance Plus, save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season... We are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. 
She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to us about your decision not to have children. I've known for quite some time, I think, that being a mom was not on my to-do list. There were lots of things that I dreamed and aspired to be. But I, And I love kids. Obviously, I built a whole career talking about youth issues and caring about kids. And I think, you know, for me, I, I got clear on that when I didn't marry the, the guy. I thought I'd, I'd make a great stepmom because I want to, like, I want to get in there and co-help and coach and love and support. But having that be a predominant identity for me was not of interest. And there's not a lot of places that you can talk about that without getting either a lot of judgment or a lot of grief or a lot of pressure. And so I think I just have avoided having that conversation. And when I met Felipe, Felipe is five years younger than I am. And I knew and, you know, he came from a culture and a family that has a very big emphasis on children. And I remember saying to him on our first date that night where all the love bells went off for me, like part of those love bells was I said to him, I just want to tell you up front, like I'm interested in being a global parent. I want to have access of wealth and resource and love and energy to give to lots of kids. I don't want to raise my own. And I don't know how that sits for you. And I remember he said, like, he kind of looked at me and was silent for a minute. And I was really scared that that was a deal breaker for him. And he said, I never thought I would meet somebody who said that in the way you did. I feel the same way. 
I love my nieces and nephews, but I don't want to be a parent. I want to be giving back, but I want to live my life in a certain way. There's some healing I want to do. There's some things that I want to do. And so we've really anchored our relationship around that global parenting philosophy. We have a girls' school in Guatemala that we're deeply engaged with for indigenous youth. And we give a lot of time and resource and energy there. We have 10 nieces and nephews who get to be doted on and spoiled like crazy. I get to show up and buy cupcakes and bake goods from your kids and love to support all these kids. Like that energy and resource for me has been such a beautiful part of my life, but has also had the shadow side of, uh, you know, your credibility as a woman, you know, your place in this culture. And I think now we have more conversations around child-free and auntie supremes and all these sorts of phrases, you know, but early days, I remember being like, oh, I definitely want to be more like Oprah than I do any of my, you know, parents, friends, with regards to her ability to have resource. And I remember Oprah very candidly saying there's no way she would be the Oprah we know if she had children of her own. And some of those gender roles around marriage and raising kids, like that sort of issue can be prohibitive. And so uh, I love where I'm at now. It's been a huge journey to get there and to feel comfortable saying it without apologizing for it as a person. I mean, I think I even did that a little bit when I was like, and I love kids. Like somehow I've got to make sure people know that my choice to not have kids doesn't mean I don't like them. It just means I know for me, I am better suited to be a support system to kids broadly than I am to individually raising humans. Oprah always is kind of like the the world mother, right? Like it's it's very similar ethos to yours, Jess. But that brought up a memory for me, which is that you almost became the next Oprah. I still, every time I'm around you, I still think you still could be. Well, I love that. Sam has definitely been my one of my earliest and most fervent champions. And for that, I will ever be, ever be grateful. I mean, Sam and I got together in my mid to late 20s when I wrote my first book and, and, and got to be on Oprah, which was obviously a dream come true. And, you know, and I did. I wanted to be the love child of Oprah and Donahue. And in many ways, I still do. I like being a provocateur of conversation and dialogue. I think a, a lot of things have happened over the course of my career. Technology and media has changed quite a bit from the days that I grew up watching Oprah and Donahue. Certainly the talk format has changed. So you're right. Podcasting is bringing me back to the closest like degree that I can of, of, of a talk show, of, of a community of conversation. I would say outside of just having a, a podcast, one of the spaces I'm really excited about right now is combining all of my brand strategy work with podcasting. So I've been able to launch a couple of branded podcasts, one of them with Shonda Rhimes and Shonda Land that was connected to Dove and the work that we do on self-esteem there. We just launched the American Girl Podcast Network, which will be the first time a kids content company has their own network, you know, and, and be able to bring that IP to life for girls. As part of my work as a strategist, I review people's campaigns and scripts and movies and TV shows all the time. And I would be lying to say I don't still have the itch of how do I put my own work out there? How do I get back to developing my own voice? I've been behind the scenes for quite some time in some of the biggest campaigns, but I miss I miss being in front of them. And it's scary because it's very easy to critique somebody else's work and help drive something strategically than to risk and put things out in the world on their own. But I'm at that intersection of taking that risk right now. So we developed a production company. We're producing, you know, branded podcasts and shows that I think will be hopefully um, 
opening up conversations in the way that I first intended when I was that playwright trying to sell clothes at the mall and not, you know, not not finding that hit there. I think talking to people and using the technology that's available now is is what I'm really excited about exploring. Sam, should we go to the speed round? Sure. Go ahead, Aim. What book are you reading? I just finished Molly Shannon's Hello, Molly autobiography, and it was fab. I was didn't know anything about her personally, love her, obviously, as a performer. But what I loved about Molly in that book was, and I hope I'm not giving, I don't think I'm giving anything material away, but she just talked about an attitude and a philosophy of raising her kids and teaching them about how you respond to a situation is really everything. And she tells this great story of responding to something that could have gone one way very differently and in turn kind of taught her kids about the adventure when things don't go your way and how that's actually more of an adventure than like a downturn. And I swear to you that has stuck with me. I think about it because I think it's not just a great parroting attribute, but for me, it was just a great reminder of like the things that you don't think, you know, the disappointments that you have don't have to be disappointments. They could be adventures onto the next. So love that book. Who is the client that you haven't worked with, but you're dying to? I like the challenge of like a really historically male-dominated space. So I'm going to say auto, maybe. Like the car space, I think, is really interesting because cars are not typically designed for women or women's bodies. So I would love, I probably, that's a, that's a space to, to explore. Who leaves you starstruck? I would say maybe the closest has been Barack Obama. Like, I think that kind of energy maybe. I've been in a room where he is, and, like, I think that maybe was the time I was, like, a little bit of a gawker. (laughs) What's your morning routine? So a big part of my mental health journey has been this health transformation that I've had in my life. Um, I've gotten really more fit and connected to exercise as a way of of self-preservation and well-being. So I work out almost every day doing a couple of different things, but I'm a boxer and I love boxing. I've done kickboxing, but I'm really training in boxing and I'm I don't know that I'll ever do like I don't know that I'll ever go into a ring actively, but I do boxing a couple days a week and that's incredible. So I do that at like really early in the morning. I wake up very early, probably like four or five a.m. That's when I get a little bit of my own meditation and regrouping time. I've got animals, so I take care of them. I love a good morning cup of coffee at five and then I'm working out and then I go jump into the day. Well, Lou Burns has been listening to our conversation and he comes in at the end of every episode with the male perspective. So my own personal journey, my, my daughter recently admitted that she struggles with her own confidence past her beauty, right? Um, and, uh, and I was literally left flabbergasted because if one, I'm a male and I don't, I don't struggle with those things anymore. But I know that sometimes the uh, application for a male is not always trans- transferable to a female. So how would I? How should I navigate that? How old is your daughter? She should be fourteen in a few days. So one thing we might want to talk about is better understanding her relationship to the compare and despair that kids at that age have, especially from social media. Um, I don't know if taking it away completely might solve that because she's going to get there's also then the reverse kind of FOMO of it all where that's a lifeline for community for kids right now, whether we understand it or not as adults like that is their 
currency of connection, especially during COVID. So just something to park and think about for a sec is just like, how might you be able to integrate it in a healthier way? But the thing that I would say is regardless of social media, because that's only an effect of a bigger symptom, right? The bigger symptom is there's something inside of her that feels like she's not enough or not good enough or is. And I think what could be interesting is to explore for her if you have not already, like what she thinks beautiful is, what are the attributes of people that she finds beautiful, you know, and don't be afraid to get curious about that. You know, if she says, well, I don't know, so-and-so at school is beautiful. Okay, tell me more about why. What is it? Tell me, is it, you know, and then let it be less about you solving her problem and more about you exploring with her where her point of view is coming from, where her view of herself is stemming from. I just find sometimes girls talk in code at this age, right? They're emulating things that they've heard. They're repeating to you things that they feel, but they might not fully understand them themselves. So instead of reacting, which I know parents want to do because we want to fix and solve and heal and stop that, let the door open for the feeling to be there for her. And don't try to fix her, but try to understand that. And I know kids don't love to be asked a lot of questions, and I don't know your daughter, so it might need to take a couple of ways to get in there with her. But I think one thing I would say is um, is get curious about why she might feel this way versus taking it at face value. I think there might be more learning you could have about her by hearing why she's feeling and struggling with her appearance. That was a refreshing talk. I love talking with Jess. You know, Amy, fun fact, when I had my personal branding firm a bazillion years ago, Jess Wiener was one of my first clients. So I've literally... <gasps> I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. I have known Jess forever and her family forever. And... I will say the first time I ever met her, she walked into the room and just gave everyone a hug. And no matter who you were, you fell in love with her. And I think she just has that gravitational pull, that it factor that is so rare. I could see that. I would love to meet her in person. Her energy is kind of infectious. And I loved hearing her story about love because I think, you know, we don't often get to hear those unconventional, unexpected moments happening to women post that like traditional, oh, you're 28 or 30 and met your husband and had three kids, <laughs> right? Like it's, uh, there's so many variations of a story and hers was beautiful. Yeah. I loved hearing what her father said, the advice he gave her. And I love the fact that she said he didn't arrive in the package she expected. And I think so many people, especially women cling to that package of what they think it should look like when love hits them and it's a lot more messy and unexpected than that. And I think the more you leave yourself open to that, the more likely you are to find that love. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you'd leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, and our male perspective, Lou Burns.